0: Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, Campaign Magazine's weekly look at what's happening in the advertising industry. I'm Brittany Kiefer, the creativity and culture editor of Campaign. Our regular host Omar Oaks is off this week, so I'm joined by Maisie McCabe, UK editor, and Kate McGee, associate editor. Hi Maisie and Kate, how are you?
1: Hello, how are you doing?
0: Good, good, thanks. So later in this episode, you can hear a conversation between legendary planner Paul Feldwick and engines Gen Kobayashi, debating whether advertising has become too knowing for its own good, which was the subject of our latest cover feature. So we're going to talk about that later. But first, I wanted to mention our pick of the week this week, which is a Nike ad that came out celebrating the strength of pregnant women.
1: What is an athlete? Someone who moves? Sounds like you. Someone who gets it done, no matter what. You do that. Someone who listens to her body. Also you. Someone who defies gravity. You. Someone who deals with the pain.
0: This was created by and Wyden and Kennedy passed. London. Uh, Maisie, what did you think of the this ad? I know that you wrote the
1: pick. Yeah, I thought it was great. I think it... Obviously, like, coming from personal experience, it, it struck a chord with me. Like, I've been that woman, like, i out for a run and had to sort of stop and worry that, you know, we've gone too fast or too far. You know, I thought it was really powerful. I think, um, you know, Knight's record in, in this kind of area isn't perfect. But I think sometimes we have to accept that brands make mistakes, they improve things. And and kind of if you think back, say, 10 years, the idea of having, you know, a variety of women of different sizes and stages of motherhood in an ad doing exercise, like it would just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. But I
0: know, Kate, you you wanted to mention, you know, the brand doesn't necessarily have the cleanest track
2: record and how it works with women, right? Oh, exactly. So I had kind of mixed views when I watched it. Obviously, it's a great ad, um, and anything that I don't know is showing women, particularly pregnant women, as you say, Maisie, in these kind of different positions, showing them exercising is a is a good thing. Um, But yeah, I kind of I I was very cynical about it when I first saw it, and I had to do some googling. I was like, wasn't that the same Nike that actually you know um, (laughs) had a real problem with its all its athletes? And it was. And so in um, to refresh. Our listeners' memories. It was May 2019 when the Olympic runner Alicia Montano said that she had to fight with Nike to keep her salary, and there were various athletes coming out, kind of condemning Nike's treatment of them. And there was one and was in this. This is a New York Times investigation. There was one woman called Cara Goucher who said her son was seriously ill in hospital, and she'd been told that in order to get paid, she had to start running again. And so her son was really sick, and she had to choose to go running to train. Um, in order to, that she would get paid. And she said she will never forgive herself for having, leaving her son in hospital seriously ill and not looking after him instead going running. And I just think that that's the sort of pressure that these big companies are putting people under. Mm. I mean, yeah, as you say, to to be fair to Nike, Nike, they, um, there's a broad public outcry, the congressional inquiry, and they've announced a new maternity policy for sponsored athletes, you know, and again, fair to be fair, very quickly, that sort of guarantees pay for the and um bonuses for the next 18 months around your pregnancy and also three other companies then followed suit. So, you know, you could argue that they've earned a right to talk about it, but it is only 18 months later or something that they're now coming out with this ad. So I feel slightly um slightly cynical about it. However, that said, from a creative perspective, it is obviously a, a great ad and it kind of plays into um you know there's been lots of ads recently about sort of breastfeeding, like the Freedom Mum ad and the um and Tommy Tippy, sort of building on I guess mother care LV lots of other ads around recently talking sort of showing different side of motherhood. And I think that those more realistic sort of depictions of motherhood is a really positive thing because it's, it just, it helps to kind of demystify a lot of the things that happen um and, you know, not set people up with these unrealistic sort of images of perfection that are quite hard to yeah. achieve. And I think,
0: yeah, like you said, showing uh, also in this ad that women don't have to be defined just by, motherhood that they can also you shock or exercise even when they're pregnant. Um, But yeah, I guess it's a a thing that a lot of brands face is at what point do you have a right to discuss some of
2: these issues if your own house hasn't always been in order? And I mean, to be fair, I think Kara's experience was a long time ago. And so they did listen, they did change things. And you know, you could argue that other companies have followed suit as a result. So they could say they're kind of brand leaders now in that space, but it's just worth bearing Definitely. in mind. Well, we can't
0: mention work by White and Kennedy London without giving a shout out to Tony Davidson. So the big news of the past week in agency world was that Tony, the creative leader who's been there, I think just over 20 years is leaving in the summer. Um, this came actually a few months after We found out that Ian Tate, the other ECD in London, is also leaving in the summer. So it means that the agency is now searching for its new creative leaders. Uh, Maisie, I imagine you will have run into Tony a bunch over the past several years that you've worked at Campaign. What do you think about his departure?
1: I mean, I think it's huge news, really. I mean, he's such a character. Um, you know, larger than life is a bit of a cliche, but he's um, yeah. he makes his presence felt in the industry and obviously in the agency. I think, you know, the sort of creative standard at Widens is incredibly high, and they're arguably one of the few agencies that sort of still has that. A really firm, defensive stance on their work, you know, when they're with they're, you know, sort of talking to clients, they really don't budge, you know, they're really prepared to kind of go into battle for the sort of you know, the treatment or the you know, the ad that they want mm. to do. Um, and so, and you know, it's a very particular you know, feel and culture to the agency as well, so it'll be really interesting, you know. I, th- I can't imagine that. You know, it's not going to be the same as hiring an ECD at another agency, particularly like say a shop at one of the big networks. It's going to be a really tight search. Um, you know, it might just be kind of internal, I guess, at Widens. But you know, it's a huge job for someone someone with the right talent. Yeah,
0: I think Widens has a history of often promoting internally or moving talent among its offices. So I do wonder if maybe it will be a rising star at Wyden's who takes over that job in London. I think you look like you said, they have such a strong creative reputation. And those are really big shoes to fill. So I think that's going to be a big story later this year.
2: Are there any other agencies that have creative leaders that have been there for 20 years? Or has it been a bit more of a changing of the guard? Recently? Oh, that's a good question. Can you think Maisie, if it anyone that long?
1: Bob's still a um mother, obviously, but with um with, with E C kind of with Anna and Hermeti under him. Um and, you know, with they have quite a lot of operational, if not complete control. Yeah. Um, twenty years, I guess. So Brays was there probably for getting on for twenty years before he left, I think. Because um, he was partnered to Peter Souter for the sort of f- first fifteen or so, I guess, or ten. Maybe. I do
0: feel like there's a new wave of leaders who are coming up. Like at AMV, for example, Alex Grieve is the CCO, but Nick and Nadia, the ECDs, are huge talents, and they're essentially running that creative department. I think at Droga Five, you know, there's Dro- uh, David Colbush, but they recently promoted Shelley Smoller to ECD. She's also hugely talented. Uh, McCann, there's Ray and Dan who came from Wyden and Kennedy so maybe this is the future of some of our creative leaders in London Mm, well let's move on to talk about our latest issue which was published last week it has a very striking cover, shout out to our art editor Chris Um, and the title of this feature is Why Advertising Should Be More Mrs. Brown's Boys and Less Fleabag I had to learn what Mrs. Brown's voice was, not being a <laughs> not being a native of the UK. <laughs> um, but Kate, since you worked on this feature, why don't you tell us the big idea behind it? Why is
2: it significant? And why do you think we're discussing this now? I love the front cover, by the way. I think it's my favorite ever campaign cover. So yeah, big shout out to Chris. If you haven't seen it, it's a picture of the Mona Lisa um, with um, <laughs> the... Mrs. Brown, from Mrs. Brown's boys' face, where Mona Lisa's face should be, and it's um it's quite striking. Uh, and the uh, the line is stop being so clever. And I think um if you obviously get the association that Mrs. Brown's boys is um there's a lot of snobbery around it, it's seen as sort of lowest lowest common denominator uh stuff versus Fleabag, which was seen as arty and creative and you know much cleverer. I, I think I think it's an interesting point that Paul Paul Feldwick is making. Um, he's got a new book out, which is kind of what prompted the chat. But this, his kind of main point is that advertising has become too focused on creating cool and arty campaigns, um, and not focus enough on creating just campaigns that are popular and that will really kind of resonate with its, you know, the broad population of the UK. And I think this is kind of pe- playing into, you know, a lot of conversations we've had recently about, you know, advertising being a bit of a filter bubble, You're not really like the broad you know, mainstream UK population, you know, they're mainly based in London, they're kind of, they tend to be wealthier, they tend to be kind of with certain political persuasions, etc. So I think his point is that actually a lot of Ad- 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 Adlanders is creating work for each other, rather than actually thinking about the actual point of creating advertising, which is to get people to buy a product or, you know, get people to be aware of a brand. Um, and that actually, this is doing them as a disservice, because it's kind of forcing this kind of disconnect between Appetising, and you know for want of a better word the, the person you know the average person in the UK if, if such a thing exists it's an interesting debate and I, th- I think it's it's got lots of people chatting about it. And, it and I think he makes some other kind of examples that he kind of he says that VCCPs compare the market work is great and should have gone to Specsavers is great mm. um you know he talks about things like the Jolly Green Giant which was created by Leah Burnett you know that sort of stuff he says it's much better because it's it's much more got more longevity it kind of it's perhaps more effective than some of these kind of other campaigns that advertising seems to get so um excited by and and tends to reward creatively which is another part that he makes that the kind of creative awards um have become so focused on these kind of arty campaigns rather than actually campaigns that work And, and what do you think of that do you think that it should be more mrs brown's voice Mm, good question I would like to see the data on a lot of this yeah. stuff I mean it would be interesting to see um you know obviously how the markets you know got great kind of effectiveness um is is a very effective campaign so it'd be, be interesting to see what these kind of big arty campaigns how effective they actually are and I, I think that there's probably you know there are some dep- it depends on what a brand wants to do and I imagine there are some situations where you do want to be arty and cool depending on you know what sort of type of person you're trying to reach um so i don't think it's a kind of one size fits all all the time but i do think that sometimes advertising what people in Adland might want i can see how it, you try and do something trendy because you're thinking about your peers and how well it would be received and whether you know we're going to pick it and whether you're going to kind of you know get get praise from your industry peers mm. where actually you should be thinking about what the person on the street that wants to buy your product is going to be thinking about how about you what do you think
0: Well coming into this market from the U.S. I have a different slightly different view of it because I heard someone say to me once that in the U.S. advertising is seen as one step above salesmen like it doesn't have the same kind of creative weight as an industry as perhaps the U.K. does or at least historically did. I think even you know the the legacy of ads like Guinness surfers or Cadbury's gorilla, like those are seen as ads that you often hear creatives say, that's why they wanted to get into advertising as they would, they saw those ads and they thought this is an opportunity to make some great creative work. So I think that the history of craft and creativity here is so much stronger compared to the American ad industry. And I think that makes this market pretty special. Um, So I do see the argument about it should be popular sometimes as well and appeal to wider audiences to sell products. I guess that is its true purpose in many ways. But I also think that trying to create art is kind of what makes UK advertising so special.
1: One of the things Feldwick says is that basically, obviously, if you can be clever and popular, then do that. But that's really hard. If you have to choose one, be popular. Um, and he sort of talks about Alan Brady and Marsh, which was sort of seen as this kind of like bit gauche kind of salesman kind of type place. But he talks about actually the, you know, the, the work they did. He liked the work they did, to, does to ABBA. Um, and, you know, sort of like saying everyone at the time thought ABBA was a bit naff. But now, you know, everybody realises how, you know, what geniuses they were
2: yeah and i think this is that's the, the quote wasn't it but he says but judgments about what was cool or high or low art are quite illusory and i mm. think that's this is what he's exactly saying isn't it? he kind of appra- reappraise abba and realizes actually it's not poppy tat; it's actually genius was his um line and I, I think you know creating being creative i think is a really good thing to be doing it's um it's what makes things great and as you say it's what attracts good talent and it's what makes people want to work in the industry. Yeah Uh, on to the other big news of the past week which was
0: that we revealed our agency of the year winners so congratulations to Uncommon Creative Studio they were our creative agency of the year for the first time and they're only about three years old so that's a huge honor for them. Um, PHD was our media agency of the year mother independent agency, VCCP integrated marketing agency. There's a long list of winners and you can see all of them at campaignlive.co.uk slash AOTY. Um, but Maisie, you wrote a piece for our magazine about what makes an agency of the year. Did you, do you have any insight you can share with the listeners who might want to win next year?
1: Yeah, well, I guess it was sort of a bit of a, a kind of indulgent look at past agencies of the year, um, you know, because I spoke to kind of Robert Senior, who was obviously running Fallon when they won twice in a row. I spoke to James Murphy, and obviously Adam and Eve have won, I think, six times. So he was, he's not been involved for the last year or so. Um, and also um, Annette King, who ran at Ogilvy One, which won, I think, um, direct agency year for four out of five years. And, you know, we look at, new business is really important the strength of the management team is really important Um, and then obviously the quality of the work since the scheme has obviously changed and molded and and now we have a panel of marketers judging um there's a there's a longer criteria in which agencies are kind of scored against and pure business performance is probably more important now than it might have been in the past but you know the work is still crucial and what with respect to a few of the judges and one of the things that came across was that particularly this year what agencies did to support their staff during, you know, the, the kind of nightmare that was the pandemic was really important. And a lot of agencies did really impressive kind of things to help support their colleagues. And then alongside that is the the whole diversity question um, and, and kind of agencies have to be seen to be really moving the dial on that and kind of really enacting change. Mm.
0: And do you think that will continue to be an important consideration in years to come or was it 2020- kind of a specific moment in time where we did think about how
1: agencies were treating their staff for example god i hope so <laughs> yeah me too you know there's sort of all this talk of no emails after hours and kind of you know forced lunch breaks and stuff i mean i think that's you know the attitude people should ha- try and have all the time really you know obviously there are pressure points with big projects and things but um but you know i hope so i hope all of us you know i hope society learns something. <laughs> um but I guess we'll see well it's great news for all the agencies
0: very impressive for uncommon to get this title when they're only about three years old but Adam and Eve was only three when they won their first agency of the year title as well right
1: yeah so I think Adam and Eve was sort of just three and uncommon or three yeah. and a half or something, yeah. Um, but yeah, so third third full year, I think for uncommon I, I i've had some fun in my in the feature, drawing some parallels, obviously, Adam and Eve went on to um, you know make some of its founders kind of twenty seven million pounds, um, so you know who knows what uncommon's plan or or indeed their kind of existing ownership structure is, but you know they 're in a really great position, i mean, I can remember when they first launched, people were a bit cynical as they can be sometimes full credit to them they've got you know as they would say it a cracking crew so they've produced some you know interesting work they've got some big clients obviously the work they've done for ITV has been really powerful um you know being Q so yeah I mean it's really interesting to see yeah whether in seven years time they've you know they've all made loads of money will they be doing it again like James and David is the question I suppose
0: yeah well they do love to say
2: that they are, quote, owned by no one. So we'll have to see if that, <laughs> those principles last. <laughs> I am really pleased for them though, because they were doing some good stuff at Grey. And I think to make the leap and go off and run, you know, set up your own agency is a big risk. And I think they've obviously done just a brilliant job and to win agency of the year after, yeah, okay, three and a half years or whatever it is, <laughs> is, is an amazing achievement. And um, yeah, good luck to them, really. Let's see what happens. Well, congratulations again
0: to all our winners and also everyone who was shortlisted. It's such a huge honor.
1: I was going to say the creative agency category in particular was really, really hard fought. There's loads of agencies that, you know, did really well.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, so many could have um, just as easily deserved the title as well. So I think credits to everyone who got through 2020 and still made some amazing work and made their business successful. So Maisie and Kate, I think that's all the time we have. What will both of you be up to the rest of this week? Anything we can look forward to? I am currently buried
2: in school reports and will continue to be buried in school reports. For the rest
1: of your life, Kate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Forever and ever. That's how it feels anyway. But um, I'm going to be working on the looking at the diversity stats for all the um, school reports agencies. Um, so I'm really interested to see what kind of patterns uh, are emerging um, and hopefully what progress is being made. Interesting. Another much-anticipated issue. Well, thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Maisie and Kate. And now on to our conversation with Paul and Gen.
2: Today, we have two brilliant speakers for you that I'm going to introduce. Um, First of all, we have Paul Feldwick, who is planning royalty. He was at BMP for 30 years, heading up planning in its heyday, and also was part of the agency when it Merged with DDB, um, he has held an extremely high esteem, including with one planning blog asking, "Is Paul Feldwick God?" <laughs> he left in 2005 and um, to become an independent consultant. He his last book, Anatomy of a Humbug, was published to widespread acclaim, and he has now written a new book. This one's called Why Does the Peddler Sing? What Creativity Really Means in Advertising. And to interview him on the topics that are raised in the book is Genko Bayashi. He's one of planning's current stars. He is currently chief strategy officer at Engine Group. He has experience unusually of both media and creative agencies. He's worked at Adam and Eve. He was head of planning at Ogilvy, and now his new role at Engine Group. So I'm going to let you guys chat. I'm going to pass over to you. Enjoy.
3: Thank you, Kate. Thanks
4: so Paul I'm um, as I am uh, I have to have to be honest I'm, I'm I'm more than more than slightly excited to be uh, to be talking to you today you are one of my uh, uh, living legends uh, in, in the world of planning I've, I've I've always admired your work and I think um, I'm really excited to be talking to you today um, I'd like to start if possible um, with uh, uh, a question about the 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 title of your book your previous book had a very distinctive title obviously the anatomy of humbug if you haven't read it already I highly recommend it um, but I'd love to talk to you about uh, about the title of of this latest book and why is it called why does the peddler sing
3: it was actually a phrase that occurred in the text and I, I have I have a great friend of mine to thank for this actually because I sent I sent a very early draft of the of the book to Rory Sutherland um, and at that time I was thinking of calling it the way of humbug or something like that as a kind of obvious sequel to the first one and um at one point in the book I'll, I'll say more about this as we go forward i expect but the figure of the the sort of medieval figure of the peddler who both sings and tells jokes and sells stuff seemed to me an important historical precedent for what advertising does and a, and a really powerful image and at some point i talked about this peddler and then I wrote in the text, Why Does the Peddler Sing? And Rory got back to me and he said, this is a great book. Um, you could call it Why Does the Peddler Sing? Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I think that's a great title. So so thank you, Rory, basically. Um,
4: uh, we, we've got Rory to thank for, for, for inputting on the title. <laughs>
3: That's uh, that's great. That's
4: great to hear. So um, um and in, in terms of just just now moving on to the actual work itself and the book itself, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating account. Um, um, you talk in you talk it specifically in the book about uh, this notion of wanting to bridge the gap that you call it, the gap between uh, theory, advertising theory, uh, the culture that exists around advertising and the production of advertising itself. Could you talk a bit more in detail about the intention? What do you what's your intention for this book?
3: Uh, my intention is to try and make today's advertising better and to, you know, give some assistance to agencies and advertisers um, who actually want their advertising to be more effective. And um, that, that that's my intention behind the book. So I hope it I hope it works. I mean, I think we're in a very odd situation at the moment because. We actually, I think, in many ways, we understand better than ever how advertising probably works, and we have evidence to back that up. And you know, I've I've been living with a number of things that have been around for several years now. There's Byron Sharp's book, books, um, and the Ehrenberg Bass work on er, uh, how advertising works by creating mental availability which, you know, I can remember when that first came out and, and even Andrew Ehrenberg was sort of talking about it 20 or 30 years ago. And at the time, you know, we just did not know what to make of that. It sounded like it contradicted everything that we'd ever been taught about advertising, everything about the sales message and, the you know, the emotional appeal and all this stuff. And it's just, it's very, very simple. You know, it just increases the salience of your brand name. And I think our first re- response to that in advertising was, well maybe you're right but I don't really know what to do with it even if it is right because it sounds like none of us have a job. Now at that point I think we were completely misunderstanding it because actually the point is if if that is true and I think it is substantially true it still leaves us with a fantastically difficult job which is it's not that easy to create fame to create salience. Um, That was another thing that actually again I'm, I'm indebted to somebody who kind of Put that thought into my head when I was I was I was still referring anatomy of humbug to something like simple fame as if it was a simple idea and I was talking about this to uh, to an audience one day at Adam and Eve at where your old agency at one point I believe and Dave Golding was sitting right at the back of the room sort of looking rather um, you know disapproving and in, after a bit he sort of interrupted and he said the thing is, uh you know you talk about simple fame but it's actually very very difficult to create fame and i thought you're absolutely right and i'd never quite thought of that so in a way the whole book i mean one way of reading this whole book is it's it's a sort of some thoughts on what does it mean to create fame and how do you create fame and and indeed i have framed it like that when i've used this similar material in training courses i've I've positioned it as a course on how do you create fame which is of course not easy and i mean you must have had some thoughts on it yourself yeah. in, the, in the various agencies that you've worked in
4: it, it isn't easy and i think i think you're absolutely right I, i'd love to i'd love to actually come on to that you talk um it, you talk a lot about the culture that exists um, not just within society and with within the sort of the, the, the people that we're trying to, 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 to reach um, um, on behalf of our brands, but actually culture within the agency world and culture within the advertising and marketing industry, which I found fascinating. One of the things that sort of struck me was we talk a lot today about um, the world of advertising and marketing being in some sort of existential kind of crisis. We're kind of perpetually asking ourselves questions, you know, are we... Are we should we be more like the consultant should we should we learn from big tech, are we doing it wrong, should we pivot. Um, But interestingly, reading your account and and, and through the history of of advertising as an industry, it feels as though we've sort of been in this existential crisis from day one, could you talk a bit about that that kind of. The 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 tension that has always existed within advertising culture.
3: I mean, this is one of the fascinating sort of uh, a sort of backstory or subtext of the whole book, which I gradually sort of became more and more aware of as I worked on it, is that from a very early date, and I can sort of specifically date this at very much about the beginning of the twentieth century, say just after nineteen hundred, and it's when advertising agencies start to really appear in a a form that we would recognize. And as they, it's also, it it, it was called the the, the sort of, it was the age in which American business generally was trying to become respectable and ad agencies desperately wanted to be respectable. Um, So from about 1900 onwards, you see all these things happening, whereby they appeared increasingly sort of desperate to distance themselves from their antecedents in the traveling medicine shows um you know or all the the street entertainers um uh because for, for good reasons as well as bad reasons um but they really wanted to become a profession and and someone like um you know ernest elmo Calkins, who i quote in the book is a famous ad man from 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 that era who lived quite a long life he really had a very clear idea that he 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 thought that You know, he wanted advertising agencies to be treated like professionals in the same way that doctors or lawyers were. So from that very early date, um, they start distancing themselves from anything to do with popular entertainment. Um, The idea of salesmanship in print, which I first wrote about in, in Anatomy of Humbug, that comes in from about 1903 and it becomes very influential. And all the theories of advertising after that tend to be dominated by the idea of you are like a salesman, you're giving facts about the product, you are rationally trying to persuade people why the product is better. Now, that is not wrong, but it only describes one aspect of what advertising does. And in many ways, it's it's not always the most important aspect. I mean, it most clearly works in things like direct response. It works elsewhere as well. But by Focusing on that to the exclusion of all else, it's really denying that there is this carnival aspect, this showmanship aspect of of the antecedents of advertising. And even as early as 1910, which was the centenary of Phineas T. Barnum's birth, the trade magazine of the time, Printers Inc, uh, wrote an editorial where they said they refused to celebrate the centenary of Barnum's birth because he was such a disgrace. And, you know, he stood for everything that modern advertising did not want to stand for. You know, vulgarity and the bizarre and the freak show and all these things. Um, So since then, I think we've been in this strange paradoxical situation where, despite all that, of course, so much advertising has continually used all the devices and tropes of popular entertainment, you know, including the, 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 the most, you know, the most popular and the, even the most vulgar kinds of popular entertainment it uses you know song and dance it uses sex appeal it uses talking animals it uses cartoons it uses celebrities blah 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 and of course when i was in advertising at bmp in the 70s and 80s particularly we did all that all the time we did the crest bear and the smash martians and you know everything was funny everything was amusing everything was above all popular and yet even then you know, we kind of did it without quite talking about it. But there was this strange double thing where I think we've we got very, very skilled at sort of pretending to our clients and indeed even pretending to ourselves that what we were doing was somehow communicating a product benefit or something like that. Whereas in reality, what we were doing, much more importantly, was what Martin Bowes actually expressed extremely well back then, he said, if you're going to invite yourself into somebody's living room, we think you have a sort of moral duty not to insult their intelligence or shout at them. But if you entertain them, put a smile on their face, you know, if you're a charming guest, then they might like you a bit more. And then they might be more inclined to buy your product. Uh, And I remember at the time thinking, well, that's, that's not what it says in all the advertising textbooks. So that's just old Martin, you know, being a bit eccentric. I now think it's incredibly profound because I think, what the, the corollary of Byron Sharp's work is mental availability is hugely important, but of course he and his colleagues stop short, and, and, and so is probably right that they should, of saying how do you create that mental availability? And actually, when you ask that question, the answers to it, I think, are best seen in terms of just drawing analogies with the whole world of popular culture. What makes something a hit record? What makes something a hit film franchise? What makes one individual into into a celebrity who's known the world over? Um, And we, we need to start thinking of ourselves. I mean, I'm sure there are things we can learn from science. There are things we can learn from big data and psychology and all the rest of it. But actually, what we tend to forget about is what should we be learning from the Kardashians, you know? Or, um, or 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 the James Bond film franchise, because those are actually the mega brands of today. In some, are they among among the mega brands of today? And 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 that is the same psychology that we work in when we're creating um, our clients' brands.
4: And I'd love that, just just t- touching on that. I mean, I, I'd like to I'd like to talk a bit more of it because you you it, the, the way you the way you describe. Um, I'm actually going to call it the c word because yeah. <laughs> uh, i don't want to give too much away to the readers but but um uh the c word being the cre- the word creativity um yeah. and um i remember actually a, a talk you gave quite a long time ago a ted talk i think it was i believe it was called sex jugs and rock and roll um Absolutely. which is great yeah. go and have a look at it online if you if you can find it and and you, you sort of build on 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 that point of what does creativity actually mean and i think Creativity in the world of marketing and advertising, it feels as though there is a, uh, there is a slight, you, you certainly highlight a disconnect between your view of what creativity actually means versus the view of creativity or the, the sort of strongly held view of what creativity is in our, in our world. And you talk about reclaiming this word. Can you, can you talk a bit more about what do you mean by reclaiming the word creativity?
3: the word creativity only really comes into use in an advertising context around 1960 um and it's very much associated with um with bill bernbach particularly in ddb um i mean other ad men of the time like david ogilvy were dead against it you know ogilvy and rossa reeves hated the word creativity ogilvy pointed out it wasn't even in the oxford dictionary which at the time it wasn't actually it only came in surprisingly late Um, and it's an interesting word i mean it's, it's used in many different contexts but right from the start it kind of set up a slight tension in advertising that creativity somehow became um something that was to be pursued in its own right and it became increasingly detached over the decades from the the important thing, which is actually creating work that is popular and that appeals to the public and that is comprehensible and enjoyable to to the public. Um, One of the mechanisms by which that happened was the development of creative awards. And again, it didn't happen immediately. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, I can still remember when most of the stuff that won creative awards was still basically um, popular advertising. Um, Now, not all popular advertising won creative awards. There were agencies like Alan Brady and Marsh, who produced hugely popular and successful campaigns like the Wonder of Woolies and so on, which were never in a million years going to win creative awards, because that was just, and interestingly, Peter Marsh had a pure show business background. He started in TV and the theater, and he worked his way into advertising from that, and he was a totally theatrical guy. He always wore white suits and drove around in a Rolls Royce and you know he ran the whole thing like Friday night at the London Palladium and of course us at BMP and CDP who were trying to do like creative advertising man we we looked firmly down our noses at at, at an agency like Alan Brady and Marsh but looking back on them now I think they knew something that we were already sort of in slight danger of forgetting that, that this at the end of the day this is about being popular and I think I'd like to think we can look back on Alan Brady and Marsh now, perhaps the way that people, people now think about ABBA. I mean, I can remember when everybody thought ABBA was extraordinarily naff band. You know, it was vulgar, it was top of the charts, and it was just poppy tat. And now, of course, everybody says, oh, ABBA, yes, genius, classic, which, which, which of course, they are. So these, these judgments about what is cool and what is not cool, about what is like higher art or lower art, they're quite illusory and they're certainly very illusory from the point of view of what advertising should be trying to do because, you know, advertising, I mean, yes, if you can do something that is classy and it's popular, then that's wonderful. You've kind of ticked both boxes. But if you're going to have to choose one or the other, choose something that's popular. You know, I mean, everybody talks about Fleabag and how wonderful it is and they're quite right. But, you know, the audience is for Fleabag are tiny compared with the audiences for Mrs. Brown's Boys, which is a programme that, you know, the people who like Fleabag probably wouldn't touch with a barge pole. So you if you're working in advertising, you have to remember your audiences could be anybody. Um, and on the whole, the bigger the audience that you appeal to, the better. Um, of course, there are exceptions, but you know, on the whole, the more popular you are, the better it is. So the whole thing about trying to appear cool and trying to, you know, please your friends in Hampstead or, or, or Greenwich Village or whatever, this is this is this is a distraction. And as I say, but for a long time we kind of lived with that and it wasn't a massive problem. But then over over time, the creative awards became more and more driven by what the juries are going to award because they find it somehow um new or edgy or pushing the boundaries and all these this sort of strange language crept in of what what good creativity was about that it had to be edgy it had to be pushing boundaries it had to be shocking it had to be destructive and disruptive and you know a lot of violent aggressive imagery comes into this which i also examine in the book and even by by about the 90s or the year 2000 you begin to see that the stuff that's winning awards I mean, some of it is very clever, but there's a, a lot of it has a sort of slight nastiness about it to, to, to my mind, um, I something like Volkswagen Lupo commercial from 2003, which is a sort of a weird bit of horror filmmaking. Now I mean, it's, it's brilliantly done. And of course, everybody in the industry went, "Oh, wow, this is great. This is fantastic. And it won lots of awards. Um, whether it actually sold any lupos to the sort of people who might wanted to buy lupos, which were basically, you know, old age pensioners, I very much doubt. But we were beginning to see then that the awards were becoming more and more detached from popular mm-hmm. appeal. And today, I think they very substantially are. Now, I would like to see them get back into being popular. I don't think that's entirely impossible, but I think it's got quite a long way to go.
2: Well,
0: that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Campaign Podcast. This episode was edited by Lindsey Riley. You can read more news and analysis about the advertising industry in Campaign Magazine at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first time listener, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Goodbye, and hope to see you again next week.